Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Last week we finished our story of the book of Ruth, that beautiful love story where everyone did, in fact, live happily ever after and was well provided for. But while the story is complete, the significance of that story is not. And so I want to take this morning and do something a little bit different. I want to uh, take our time today to sort of flesh out how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. We have talked about that throughout this study of Ruth, but this morning I want to get more specific. And so just as Boaz was the redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, and even as we said last week that he is a picture of Jesus, and we even talked about the fact that Obed, the son born to them, is in some sense also a redeemer and a picture, and we want to see how all of that points to Christ. So we're going to spend our time this morning with the five aspects or roles of the kinsman redeemer and show how Jesus does fulfill all five of these. Now, I listed those for you in a previous sermon in this series, but I don't expect you to remember them. And so I will restate them as we go along. The text I have selected this morning, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, is going to deal with the fifth of the five roles that we're going to look at this morning. There's no one text in all of Scripture that deals with all five of these roles. And so I am going to read that text in just a few moments. It is a text that deals with the leverate or leverite or leverate. Uh, there's multiple ways to pronounce that, at least in my own head. Um, so I don't know which one's right. But uh, we talked about that briefly last week, and the text we're going to read is about that. But before we get there, I want to start with two truths that are going to be essential for us to understand how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer and what that redemption is all about. First, the person who is being redeemed is powerless to redeem themselves. I mean, that makes sense, right? The only reason we need a redeemer is because we are unable to redeem ourselves. We do not have the power to accomplish that on our own. In our world, that means that all of us are sinners separated from God, and there is nothing we can do to atone for our own sins and bring about our own redemption. This is in spite of the fact that the vast majority of world religions are built upon that very foundation. That is, most world religions outside of Christianity basically say, here are some things that you must do, here are some other things that you must avoid, and if you do these things and avoid the other things and do it with a sincere heart, then you can atone for your own sins and you can be made right with God. But Christianity says that sin is so pervasive and deep and that God is such a holy God and therefore sin is such an affront to this holy God that there is nothing we can do to eradicate that sin nor overcome it. And thus, our separation from God remains unless we have a redeemer. So that's the first, first truth that's going to be the foundation of all of these. You and I are powerless to redeem ourselves. 
The second truth is that redemption, and I want you to keep this in mind throughout, redemption is costly. We saw last week in the fourth chapter of Ruth that this unnamed man counted the cost. That is, he did the math financially in his head to see what it would cost him and his family to redeem Ruth and Naomi, and he came to the conclusion that the cost was just too great. But then, of course, we also saw Boaz faced with the same math, willingly paying the price for redemption. So as we examine our great Redeemer this morning, remember those two things. You need a Redeemer because you are powerless to redeem yourself, and God in Christ has provided redemption for you at a tremendous cost so that he then can offer that redemption to you free of charge. Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning in verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." And if the woman does not wish to take, I'm sorry, if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called, shall, and the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off." Now, again, I know that's a strange passage for us to deal with this morning, and as I mentioned, it will deal specifically with the fifth responsibility that we're going to talk about this morning. But I didn't want to jump all around in the Bible and have you turning from place to place, though we are going to do a little bit of that, and I did not want to wait till my fifth point to read the Scripture, so I went ahead and read it at the beginning, and we'll deal with it towards the end. The first role of our Redeemer is the role of the deliverer. You may recall that one of the responsibilities of the nearest kin was to buy back an individual who had become poor and sold themselves into slavery. We find this in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 47 and following. So I'm gonna read three verses. You can turn there if you want or you can just pay attention. Leviticus 25, 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you to a member of the stranger's uh, clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his uh, clan may redeem him, or if he goes rich, grows rich, he may redeem himself. So, of course, this refers to a physical deliverance. Someone has become poor 
and therefore they sell themselves into slavery, and the kinsman redeemer buys them back physically from slavery so that they become free once again. Now, if that did not happen, if there was no one to redeem them, then they would have been set free in the year of Jubilee, which occurred every 50 years. But if a kinsman redeemer were to redeem them, then the purchase price was dependent upon how many years was left until that year of Jubilee. But whatever the price that was agreed upon, the nearest kin would be releasing their relative from physical captivity and setting them free. Of course, you remember the greatest story of deliverance in the Old Testament. The story of the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt being miraculously delivered by God. God was redeeming them from physical slavery in Egypt. And as a result, he established a remembrance. They were to remember this the rest of their lives, how God had redeemed them in their history. But as we make our way to the New Testament, we're talking today about our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We are not primarily talking about a physical deliverance. This is not a sermon about Jesus redeeming you from a difficult marriage or a demanding boss. I'm not about to promise you that he will deliver you from every trying or difficult circumstance you endure. As much as we might want that to be the case, I need you to understand that our great Redeemer has done something far beyond delivering us physically from anything that we may be going through. You see, we too were slaves. Now, you might protest that slavery has long since been abolished in our nation, and you have never been a slave to anyone. Amazingly, the Jews tried this with Jesus in spite of their history. They said to Jesus on one occasion, we've, been in, we've not been slaves to anyone. And that might be your first thought when I say you were once a slave. And it might in fact be true that you've never been a slave to anyone, but you have been a slave to something. In Romans chapter 6, Paul makes it very clear that we were once slaves to sin. And again, the language there points to the powerlessness of our own ability to deliver ourselves from sin. But then Paul writes this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. In what must have been an amazing Sabbath service, early on in his ministry, Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, and on the Sabbath day, he was in the synagogue. And he was invited to read the scripture for that particular day, and he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. These are the words Jesus read on that sun, Sabbath that surely must have had a packed crowd. He read these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you notice two times in that text that he read, the word liberty is found? So he reads from the prophet Isaiah, and frankly, there's nothing earth-shattering about that. He was simply reading the scripture for the day, as we did just a few moments ago. And then he sat down. Sitting down was the posture in that day in which they taught. They stood up to read the scripture. They sat down to teach. And so Jesus reads these words from Isaiah, 
He sits down, the crowd is looking at him, wondering what he's going to say next. Having given the scroll back to the official in the synagogue, these are the next words that he said. He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now that's the earth shattering part. That's so earth shattering, the ramifications continue to our own day. Jesus said in the synagogue in Nazareth, basically, I am your nearest relative. I am the kinsman redeemer, and I am going to deliver you from captivity to sin and death and to set you free. And at first they marveled and were astonished at what he was saying because they were thinking to themselves, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't he the carpenter's boy? And now he's reading from the prophet Isaiah and saying, I am about to fulfill this in your hearing. By the time that service was over with, they drug him out of town to a cliff intending to throw him off of that cliff to his death. And that passage of scripture says no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. The people thought they knew who he was. He's just the carpenter's son. He was claiming to be something much more and they couldn't embrace that. So if you're a believer here this morning, your great redeemer has set you free from sin and death and given you freedom. He is our redeemer who has brought us back, bought us back from slavery so that we now belong to him. And that's just the first one. We've got a whole lot more. The second role or responsibility of the kinsman redeemer is what I'm calling the judge. Now, pay careful attention here because we don't tend to think of judge or judgment in a positive tone. But I'm using the title judge because I'm talking about someone who is responsible for bringing justice. Remember, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, we outlined the fact that if there was a serious crime, particularly a crime that results in death, the kinsman redeemers, it was his responsibility to seek justice on behalf of the one who had been killed. And this would sometimes involve obtaining financial restitution as well for less serious crimes, but we'll hang on to that for a moment. Now, this was not vigilante justice. The kinsman redeemer, in his role of judge, essentially became an agent of the state and ultimately an agent of God. This is not the first instance of the Hatfields versus the McCoys, so don't be thinking about that. This is not two clans in, in, in Israel perpetually being against each other. This is the kinsman redeemer becoming an agent of the state and ultimately an agent of God. And that is why in the Old Testament you read these stories about the cities of refuge. God had established cities all over Israel that if someone unintentionally killed somebody, they could flee to these cities of refuge and there be assured of a fair trial and ultimately then of justice. That way, there would be no unjust killing of someone who had killed someone, but they didn't mean to do it. Now, how does this portion apply to our great Redeemer and us? I mean, we don't have cities of refuge. It is not our responsibility to pursue justice for our uh, kin, at least not in the sense of killing them. 
So how does this apply to us? Well, first of all, Romans 13 tells us that we are to submit to the governing authorities that God has placed over us, recognizing that it is God who has put them there. Regardless of party, regardless of policy, God has established government, and part of that government's responsibility is to protect us as citizens and therefore to bring justice to those who would do evil against us. Now, I know there's a lot of talk today about social justice, and certainly certain elements of that go beyond the Bible. But justice is a biblical idea and ideal, and God is the one who will bring that justice by bringing judgment upon those who do not fall under his grace. You know, it's interesting that we always want justice against our enemies, but we want mercy for ourselves. But that's a sermon for another day. My point this morning is that Jesus is our great redeemer who does function in this role of bringing justice for us. He ultimately promises that, perhaps not in this life per se, but in the life to come. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we know that ultimately our great Redeemer will bring justice for our wrongs and will judge those who oppose his people. That is not our role anymore because we have a Redeemer whose role that is and he promises to bring justice. So we have the deliverer, we have the judge, the third role of the Redeemer is the purchaser. Remember, Naomi had that piece of land that needed to be sold in order to help provide for her and Ruth. But it needed to be sold within the family because God did not want the land, the land that he had given them, the land that we know as the promised land, to go outside of the clan or the family. And so the kinsman responsibility, if a family member had to sell the property for financial reasons, the kinsman, kinsman redeemer's responsibility was to buy it back for them. And we saw that in chapter four. That way the land stayed in the family. And it was important because the family's stake in the promised land was symbolic of their stake in the kingdom of God. God said in, Levit in Leviticus, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you were strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. Now, if we were to go to that text, you would find that following this, there is a lengthy list of how this was to take place and how the price of redeeming the land was to be determined, but we don't want to get into all of the, the details of that. Instead, we want to stick to the principle. And of course, we also want to explore how Jesus redeems the land for us. How is Jesus the kinsman redeemer as the purchaser of land so that it remains in the family? Well, surely you realize that whatever property you own does not have this same distinction. You are free to sell whatever property you own for whatever fair price you can get it to whomever is willing to pay it. And your relatives are not responsible for buying it back. So don't use your newfound knowledge of the role of the kinsman redeemer to extort money from your relatives and say they have to do this for you. It does not apply to us in that way. 
So how does it apply to us? Well, we said at the beginning of this series that the Bible could be read in a sense in its entirety about how we've been exiled from the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, and we are waiting a return to paradise. We are waiting an exodus, a deliverance, and a return to paradise. They forfeited their inheritance in the garden when they sinned. But Christ has redeemed a place in heaven for us, a place that we await to see personally. He has promised that he is preparing this place for us. And if he has gone to prepare a place for us, then he will return to take us to be in that place. So yes, there is a promised land awaiting us, a land that we long to go to and know that some of our friends and family have already arrived there. The Bible also speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, that in some sense all of creation is going to be redeemed when Christ establishes his kingdom. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, the beatitude portion of the Sermon on the Mount, one of those beatitudes says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Revelation 21 speaks of a new heaven, a new earth being the place where God will dwell with man and we will be his people forever. And then he adds there that when we are in that place, there will be no longer any pain or mourning or any crying. So yes, there is a promised land that God has purchased as our redeemer for us. It is not the property that you currently reside on. Instead, it awaits a future fulfillment. And no, I cannot answer all your questions about where that will be and what it will look like and what we will do. Instead, I, like you, must await the fulfillment of that promise and in the meantime, trust in that promise. Which leads us to the fourth aspect of the kinsman redeemer, and that is the advocate. This is similar to our second point, where the redeemer was to avenge blood. That is, the, the kinsman redeemer was to bring justice for the victim of a murder. In this case, it is still about justice on behalf of someone else, but not to the extreme of death. So it might be that someone had a crime committed against them, and they, for whatever reason, were not able to redeem it for themselves, and so the kinsman redeemer is going to seek justice, oftentimes in the form of financial restitution on their behalf. And so if you want to think in legal terms, they are arguing, they are advocating on behalf of the victim. Now, we know, of course, that Jesus is our great redeemer. That's what we're talking about. And in 1 John 1, 21, or I'm sorry, in 1 John 2, 1, he is said to be our advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf so that now that wrath is not poured out against us. And this is the aspect of salvation that some want to downplay or even deny. They don't like the idea that God is a wrathful God who must pour out that wrath upon sin. They say it seems to make God look angry or hostile or violent. And so they want to downplay that aspect of God and soften the nature of God. But we don't need to soften anything when it comes to God. God is a God who is angry against sin. And God is a God who is a just God and therefore he must punish sin. 
which leads us to the good news of the gospel that God has poured out his wrath not upon us who have trusted in him, but God has poured out his wrath upon his son, satisfying that wrath on our behalf so that he then can graciously pour out mercy on us. That is what the cross is all about. The cross is all about how a just and merciful God can satisfy his own wrath against sin while not pouring it out on us so that we then instead can be extended his mercy. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Christ is our advocate. He is our intercessor before the Father. Now, that does not mean that he is constantly pleading to his Father about your goodness or your worth. It does not mean that he is constantly pleading with the Father about whatever it is you're praying for, trying to convince God the Father to give you whatever it is you want. What it means is that he's constantly saying to the Father, he belongs to me. She is one of mine. I have paid the sin debt for her. I have satisfied your wrath for him. And therefore, we can be shown mercy and forgiveness rather than wrath. Are you beginning to see how comprehensive our salvation is? How multifaceted our redemption is? That salvation in Christ is not praying a prayer and getting baptized and then just waiting around until we go to heaven someday. And we're not even at the best part yet. So we might as well go there now. The last of the five roles, and arguably the most important, the kinsman redeemer plays the role of the husband. Now, I hesitated to call it that because I don't want us to think in romantic terms. I've just read an article this past week, it was in the Knoxville News, perhaps you saw it, about the top 25 worship songs in Christian churches and how the vast majority of them fall under the category of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of theme. And so that is not where I am heading when I talk about this. However, the church is clearly called the bride of Christ. So the image of our Redeemer being the husband is an accurate, redeem, an accurate picture as long as we don't correlate it with everything else we know about husbands. So we get this from our text that we read earlier in Deuteronomy. And of course, from the last chapter of Ruth that we dealt with last week. The closest relative, ideally a brother, was to marry his deceased brother's widow and provide a son for her. The son then would not ultimately belong to him, but the son would carry on the name of the deceased brother. Now, presumably, any other children born to the marriage would belong to the redeeming brother, not the deceased. Now, I realize that such an arrangement is foreign to us, and some of you might say, gratefully so. But we do have a lot of questions as a result. What if the brother is already married? What if the brother is not of age? Well, that second question we know the answer to because there are cases in the scripture where they were to wait for the younger brother to become of age. But again, we don't want to get bogged down into the details, especially into a system that no longer applies to us. 
Instead, we want to focus on the significance of that system and how Jesus fulfills it for us. Now, if you have a study Bible with you, you might want to look down and see what your heading is for this particular section. Again, Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5. Mine here says, laws concerning leverate marriage. Or if we want to pronounce it the other way, laws concerning leverate marriages. That word leverate or leverate, this is the only time it's found in the Bible. And it's a heading So it's literally not found in the Bible. It's not in the inspired text. It is a heading put there to help us. It comes from a Latin word, which means husband's brother. And of course, as we've seen, if the brother was unable or unwilling, then the role could be taken by the next closest relative in line. That's what we saw in Ruth chapter four. And so the purpose, again, as we saw in Ruth, was to provide provisions, protection, rest, and ultimately security for the widow. Now you may have noticed a slight difference as we read this story. We talked about that sandal ceremony last week, but there was an additional element here in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and that was a spitting in the face of the man who refused to be the redeemer. Even to this day, spitting on someone is a very disrespectful thing to do. Something they did to Jesus during his ordeal. And I don't know if this is true or not, but it's intriguing. Could it be that they were spitting on Jesus as a way of saying, you're not our redeemer? You're not going to be our kinsman redeemer? And so they were spitting at him. I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's an an interesting side note. What I want you to see at this point is that Ruth is the one we need to identify with. When we're in that story of Ruth, we are not the hero Boaz, coming to save two widows. We are Ruth. We are a foreigner who were not part of God's people. We are spiritually destitute. Now we know Ruth was physically destitute and also spiritually destitute, but we are spiritually destitute as well. We were the ones worshiping idols and unaware of the one true God. But like Ruth, we've been grafted into the people of God through Jesus Christ, our great redeemer so that we are no longer a foreigner or an alien. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We are now his chosen people. And all because of that other word we looked at in the story of Ruth, God's hesed, his covenant love, his covenant faithfulness, his covenant loyalty that led him to send us a great redeemer who purchased our freedom. Again, when we were powerless to do anything about it ourselves, And at great cost, he redeemed us for himself so that we now belong to him. We are his bride and we take our direction from him. And we can trust that he will protect us, provide for us, and give us the rest and security that we so desperately long for. You say, well, how can you be so sure that all of this has happened and will be fulfilled? Well, you remember Boaz gave Ruth a promise, right? He said to to Ruth, I promise you in the morning, you will be redeemed either by me or by this unnamed man. But tomorrow morning, I'm going to the city gates and I'm gonna speak to the elders of the city and we're gonna make sure that you and Naomi are going to be redeemed. Well, we've been given a promise as well. 
Paul told the, the Galatians that God sent Jesus to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We have that same promise of redemption if we trust in Christ. You say, but well, Boaz gave Ruth tangible evidence of that promise. Yes, he did give her a promise, but he gave her tangible evidence as well. He loaded her down with grain to take back to Naomi as a sign and a symbol that he was going to fulfill the role of the kinsman redeemer. Well, God's given us a tangible a reminder of evidence as well. The Lord's Supper is a visual reminder of the promise given, a pictorial of his death, burial, and resurrection that is intended to remind us again of what Christ has done for us. This is commanded of us by Jesus as a reminder of our redemption until that redemption is complete. He says, I will totally and completely redeem you. But it's not yet complete. It's not yet totally been fulfilled. And so do this in remembrance of me. So that's what we're going to do this morning. If you are a baptized believer who, have pl who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then we invite you to join us in just a few moments as we partake of the bread and the juice as a reminder of the Redeemer and what he's done for us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, who has fulfilled every role of the kinsman Redeemer, delivering us from sin and death, bringing justice for us against our enemies. He has purchased a, a place for us, which means he is going to return that we might be with him and you forever. He is the great redeemer who has adopted us, grafted us into the family so that we are no longer foreigners, but we are heirs of eternal life. What a great inheritance that is. Lord, as we partake of your Lord's Supper, may we be reminded of just what a great redeemer we have. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.